0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Deanne Stillman about her new book, Blood Brothers, the story of the strange friendship between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill. Deanne, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks a lot, Mark. It's really nice to be speaking with
0: you. And it's nice to have you on our podcast. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, I've been writing since I was a little girl. I grew up in Ohio, and um, I... Uh, never much like cold weather. I don't like ice fishing. And um, my parents were very book-minded. And uh, my father taught me to read when I was a little girl, and that became my means of escape. And uh, one of the things he used to read to me frequently was the poem El Dorado by Edgar Allan Poe. And Poe was one of his favorite poets. And that particular poem has the lines uh Gaily diet a Gallant Night in Sunshine and in Shadow had traveled along singing a song in search of El Dorado and you know it goes on and detailing the the uh travels of this wandering night across the desert and I started to live inside that poem as uh, a way out of Ohio. And also you know it had its own it created its own enchanted world but really I just longed to get away and head West. And, um, I knew I was going to be a writer when I grew up. Also, I should mention that I grew up around horses. My mother was one of the first women in the country to ride professionally on the racetrack as an exercise boy. And, um, she would take me and my sister to the racetrack with her in the mornings. And, you know, we would uh, hang out there and, um, watch the horses breeze by and meet all these amazing characters. And she also had taught us to ride, and we had horses as well. And that kind of fueled my wanderlust. So that combined with this uh, love of literature and the fact that I was literally living inside that poem, El Dorado, um, uh, all kind of led to my getting to California at some point. And um, I began writing about the modern and frontier West some time ago. Um, My stories involve um, kind of uh, big American episodes involving collisions and cataclysms and (laughs) iconic characters and voiceless characters. And um, I kind of, uh, I don't know, these are the people who, who call me. And, um, live inside my imagination as well as, uh, you know, in a, in a national mythologies. So when I was working on a previous book of mine, Mustang about wild horses in the West and the the ongoing wars to wipe them out, um, I found out about a horse that, uh, Buffalo Bill who was this great uh, 19th century showman had uh, presented to Sitting Bull well, during the, Sitting Bull joined up with Buffalo Bill for four months, several years after he had um, uh, surrendered following the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And when Sitting Bull decided to go back to Standing Walk, the reservation where he was then living, uh, Buffalo Bill presented him with a horse that he rode in the show. And um, several years later, the well, wait, let me backtrack for a second. The horse had been trained to dance at the sound of gunfire in the Wild West show. And several years later, when Sitting Bull was ambushed at his cabin as the um, Indian Wars were reaching their climax, the horse started to dance again while the bullets were flying. Or so that legend goes. So this image of a of the dancing horse from the Wild West show that Cody had presented to Sitting Bull haunted me for a long time and it led me to write Blood Brothers. And I just, you know, I couldn't shake that image and I started thinking about what did brought these two men together and the fact that they shared a bloody history and that the one thing that really linked them in a very profound way, was this dancing horse from the Wild West show, which was all about mythologizing what went on in the frontier. What went on on the frontier?
0: I, I was thinking as you're describing uh, what the themes in your writing, how this book brings so many of them together. You you write about you know you integrate animals into the story in a way that you don't always necessarily see in stories about uh, the American West. Uh, And you also have these uh, very large personalities, not just uh, Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill, but Annie Oakley and a lot of these other figures who were part of these Wild West shows. And you start with one of them in particular as a means of describing how these Wild West shows began. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about George Catlin and and what he reveals about this uh, whole genre of performance that uh, these individuals end up becoming a part of.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty amazing period of time. Um, George Catlin was an artist and a really really fantastic artist, and he chronicled the American West. He began, like, in the 1830s, trekking into the frontier, and um, he wanted to make a chronicle of Native Americans as they were undergoing early contact with white people and what was going on, what was happening to the tribes as, um, this new civilization was encroaching. And he, um, befriended a number of Ojibwe Indians who lived along the Missouri River and he started to paint their portraits and then at some point he decided to, um, bring these portraits alive and he wanted to um, introduce Native Americans to the rest of the world. And he took um, a cast of Ojibwe to Europe and presented them as, um, you know, representatives of the American frontier, which they were. And what he found out was that there was this instantaneous profound fascination with, with American Indians and also what was going on on the frontier. And that goes on to this day, by the way, we can speak a little bit more about that later. Um, there was just a huge, a huge connection for your Europeans with native Americans. And, um, I mean, they were so, uh, taken with them that they, women would go backstage and touch them. And, um, Want to be near them? They were like rock stars, you know, making everybody go crazy. At any rate, when Catlin returned to the states, <coughs> and kind of he had a He had some serious financial problems and a number of sort of, of, of terrible things to sell. Some of the Indians on tour, and um, the uh, traveling show came to a halt. And but his, his um, portraits endure, and they're in the I think they're at the Smithsonian in Washington. They're they're just fabulous portraits. But but his, so what he did in um, organizing his own cast of traveling Native Americans was he put together a show which prefigured Buffalo Bill in his own Wild West show. And, you know, Cody, William F. Cody was Buffalo Bill's real name. Cody um, took it to a whole new level. I mean, it, you know, he it was so good, it's pure and simple. <laughs> at, at, you know, he was like the original ripped from the headlines kind of guy. It was like, a, you know, it was a huge reality show, really, The Wild West. And um, as battles were unfolding on the frontier, battles between the cavalry and, and um, you know, various tribes, a uh, number of which Cody himself was involved with, he would. Um, he was a very good actor and he was traveling, shuttling back and forth between the Great Plains and Broadway and other theaters back east and he would present these, he would restage these battles using some of the same characters including himself and some of the cowboys that, who were scouts with him along the trail and he employed various Native Americans and these shows were a huge hit. And at some point after one of these one of his presentations, he was sitting in a bar in Brooklyn. I think it was like in 1880. It was the early 1880s. He was sitting in a bar in Brooklyn with um, another impresario. And um, this guy, uh, it was um, Nate Salisbury. It was uh, himself also sort of traveling around the world and presenting his own kind of frontier shows. But he's, said to Cody in this bar. So, uh, you know, how about we did this thing that you're doing on stage in New York? How about let's go big with it. Um, I think we can, you know, let's hire hundreds of cowboys and hundreds of Indians and we can get all these horses and Buffalo and people love this stuff. I mean, it was really like, that It was really like a kind of a Hollywood meeting. And, uh, Cody loved the idea and um, he, of course, he, he was, you know, he knew he would be the headliner and he was a huge figure at that time. His shows had really taken off and um, there were dime novels that had been written about him that those they, those were sort of pulp westerns, which lots of people were reading and, you know, what was going on on the frontier, all this action, stories of nonstop action and, Cowboys versus Indians and army scouts and this whole bloody drama that makes up American history. All this stuff was usually popular then. And, um, you know, the idea of taking it big just really caught on very quickly. And that's what Cody did. And he, um, he, along with his partner, Nate Salisbury and a few other people, um, They, you know, they got some investors together, and they put together this cast, as I was mentioning, and they hit the road and went from city to city, reenacting famous battles like the Battle of Little Bighorn and um, Native Americans attacking settler outposts and um, stagecoaches running amok, and um, they had cowboys performing all sorts of amazing feats with bucking broncos and. Uh, It was just, you know, thousands and thousands of people would line up, you know, in this, in from city to city waiting for the Wild West show to come to town. I mean, again, it was just like a rock concert, you know, in your backyard when these, when all these people would show up. But at some point, Cody realized he needed, I mean, he was obviously the headliner. He was this huge figure, but he need, he needed um he wanted to take the show to another level, but he needed another superstar. And when Sitting Sitting Bull, who had been blamed quote unquote for um killing Lieutenant George George Armstrong Custer after the Little Bighorn, um he fled with his tribe north and was had been in exile in Canada for a few years, and then returned to the U.S. when, um, the Canadians decided to turn them back over to American authorities. Cody had, a lot of people had been wanting to get Sitting Bull for their shows. There were other traveling circuses at the time and Sitting Bull was like the guy to get. He was like, you know, um, David Bowie, but that sort of trivializes it. I mean. He's the. He was the, you know. He's one of the most famous icons of all time in this country and across the world, and rightly so. He was um, a very uh, powerful guy. He was a shaman, a medicine man, a chief. He had. A, he was very charismatic. He was the counterpart to Buffalo Bill, and Cody knew that he needed somebody of Sitting bull stature for a show. And uh, how,
0: how did he succeed in, in in recruiting uh, Sitting Bull when all these other impresarios were also interested in and and, and not as and not successful, obviously, in terms of um, uh, getting Sitting Bull's cooperation?
1: Yeah, it's a good question because uh, Sitting Bull had been courted by a number of other shows and was did travel around with a couple of them and um, didn't much like it. I mean, as I said, Sitting Bull had been blamed for killing. Custer, even though he had nothing to do, he, Custer went out in the so-called last stand at the Little Bighorn, and Sitting Bull really didn't have anything to do with the last stand, although he certainly was, he was nearby and um, was a, you know, is regarded as, not regarded, but I mean, was a, in a major part of the, of the, um, that final episode involving the uh, Lakota versus, uh, the American cavalry, and, and um, certainly as a tactician, was he and Crazy Horse, and, and some others were, you know, were essential, and they won. You know, it was a, it's the battle from which this country has yet to recover. Native Americans defeated the U.S. cavalry at the Little Bighorn, and I have a chapter about that in Blood Brothers. Um, so he, because he, he was this towering figure. But yet he was he was both revered and reviled as a killer of Custer, who was who was a national hero, as well. Um, while Sitting Bull was traveling around with with other shows, often enough he would be booed and sometimes spat on, you know, and also uh, you know wildly applauded. But he was having some problems on the road, and he wasn't really treated properly in in. Some of these shows, and he really needed he needed to be with somebody of his stature so by the time Cody contacted him, it was the the moment was right um it was superstar to superstar and um the uh the uh white man who in charge of the reservation. Uh, where Sinning Bull was living, the white uh, general James McLaughlin at Standing Rock um, was a person who had to give permission for Sinning Bull to travel, as he did, as that was the rule for any 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 of the Indians on the reservations who wanted to leave. And Cody and his advancement made a they approached McLaughlin and arranged and threw McLaughlin you know, were able to speak with Sitting Bull about the possibility of his joining the Wild West. And, um, you know, they they came to terms and they made an acceptable agreement. And what, you know, a big reason that Sitting Bull wanted to travel with Cody was that he wanted to see what white people were up to. It was an opportunity to hit the road and see what was going on. But also he was hoping that by traveling with Buffalo Bill, at some point he would get to Washington D.C. and meet the grandfather, which was the uh, Lakota. How the Lakota referred to the American president, and he wanted to talk to the president and face to face and ask him, "Hey, you know, why why haven't you honored a single treaty with my tribe? What happened here?" That was really a driver behind Sitting Bull's. Joining up with the Wild
0: West. You also mentioned a, another element that was really key to Buffalo Bill's outreach, which was how he took advantage of this prior uh, meeting that Sitting Bull had with Annie Oakley. So it's not just a matter of these two superstar celebrities, but there's this third one as well, who is all who is you know this very remarkable uh, personality, who is a, a very novel performer and one who, as you explained, uh, really struck uh, Sitting Bull uh, and and really uh, made her a great hook for Buffalo Bill to draw him into uh, the show.
1: Yeah, that's a really incredible part of the story. Well, Sitting Bull, prior to joining the Wild West, Sitting Bull had been traveling with um, a show that went to St. Paul, Minnesota. And while he was there, Uh, Annie Oakley had been giving her own exhibition, and she was quite an amazing, you know, she had a way with guns, as some people may know. Um, She did all these wild stunts, and she would, like, shoot apples off the top of her dog's head. Um, She would blow cigarettes out of her husband's mouth, Um, you know, real daredevil kind of things. And um, she literally, she was a woman who literally had shot her way out of poverty. I mean, she grew up in Ohio in a big family, and they were very poor. And, um, you know, as a lot of kids in Frontier families did, they, you know, they learned how to hunt at an early age. And because she was such a good shot, she would bag countless animals and bring them home for Dinner, and also sell them to restaurants. She was basically supporting her family with her um, expertise with guns and hunt, and, and because she was such a good hunter, very effective one. And um, I mean, at some point, according to, to the record, she had killed so many small game animals that they had to tell her to put a lid on it. I mean, it was just real; it was quite proficient. Um, but at any rate, she. Turned it into a whole career, and she hooked up with um, this cowboy named Frank Butler, who was another trickster with guns. And um, they were traveling together when they hit St. Paul. And so Sending Bull came, saw them giving this exhibit, and um, was quite taken with her. And um, after the show, uh, sent her a note backstage, approached her I think he wrote her sent her a note and it was delivered to her room and, and you know they they met up and and instantly hit it off and um, he kind of regarded her as a daughter or in fact came to think of her according to some things that he himself had said later uh, came to think of her as a daughter who was one of his daughters who um, had died several years prior um, he was just he was just he really liked kids a lot. So did Cody, by the way. Um, to, while they were traveling in the wild west, Sitting Bull, Sitting Bull, um, was the highest paid uh, member of the show, became the highest paid member of the show at that point, when he, at the point when he was hired. And, um, he would give away a lot of his money on the road to, uh, orphan kids that he encountered. And there were plenty of them wandering the frontier then. And it was something he remarked on. He thought, like, why these white men are so advanced technologically? You know, they've got all this gunpowder and look what they're, they're farming and just completely, you know, clearly they were, he thought that they were superior technologically to his people, but he remarked that they, why aren't they, why can't they take care of their own children? Why are all these poor orphans wandering the streets You know, it's it's an incredible thing that he observed and tried to do. It's really interesting that he tried to do something about it. And what he said then kind of applies now to all the homeless in the streets. You know, it's the same situation. But at any rate, he and Annie Oakley really hit it off. I think something that could be said about all three of these characters is that they all share this history. Annie Oakley came from a very poor family. I mean, sitting bulls traviles, you know, with it being ousted at the height of his tribe's power from their homeland and, um, and, uh, you know, having to force, having even forced to flee to Canada and then return as, um, as people who no longer had title to their own, home, you know, that was obviously a devastating scenario and Cody too grew up in a poor, um, family on the plains and, um, you know, they're, they out their live, they out a living there, farming and hunting. And his father was an abolitionist, you know, during the civil war and into trouble because of it. So all of these three characters really shared a pretty rough history. And so did a lot of members of Cody's show. Um, but it was because of, um, uh, when Sitting, when Cody asked Sitting Bull to join his show, and they were dickering over a contract, over how that would work, and so when, when Sitting Bull learned that Annie Oakley had just been hired, Cody too was quite taken with her skills. That prompted him to join up with the show. He really it made him feel comfortable. Here was somebody he had already hit it off with. It was. Traveling with the Wild West. And so that was kind of a thing that eased this whole partnership. And you know the nickname that Annie Oakley has, Little Miss Sure Shot? That was something that um, Sitting Bull called her. Actually, apparently it was a mistranslation. It, what it really meant was little person who does good things. But in any case, the fact that he called her. Little Miss Sure Shot, and that became her nickname, kind of catapulted her into, um, you know, superstardom, really, was a great, was great branding, to use today's term, (laughs) and um, you know, there you have it, so the three of them were traveling together across America.
0: What exactly did Sitting Bull do in the show itself? Was he just a was he brought out for people to see? Uh, Was he incorporated into any of the acts? What what was how how did he uh, contribute to the performances?
1: He he wasn't really he didn't really perform other than to show up as himself. Um, He would ride around the arena once at the beginning of the show, sometimes. You know, just solo on a horse, or sometimes he was drawn in a carriage. But he wasn't part of the rest of the show. Like the, you know, he wasn't involved in any of the reenactments. He didn't engage in powwows and shoot 'em ups. I mean, that really would would have been beneath him. And Cody was right to not, you know, ask that. I'm not giving Cody point. Maybe he did, and Sitting Bull declined. I don't know. I doubt it. I think that Cody knew that the proper way to present sitting Bull, And one reason he wasn't happy with shows he had traveled with prior was because he did, you know, he was sort of asked to do demeaning things, not in terms of reenactments, but he wasn't given the superstar treatment that he really deserved. I mean, again, this is one of the great men of American history. Um,
0: one of the things you describe in the book that I thought was really fascinating were all these encounters he had over as he was touring with men that he had fought against over the course of his life, and how. So you mentioned how sometimes he'd be booed by audiences, but when it came to these meetings with uh, individuals, uh, army officers, and so forth. How they would oftentimes greet him almost uh, eagerly. They, 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 they it, there was no sense. There didn't seem to be any sort of sense of resentment about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes soldiers would come to the shows and want you know go backstage afterwards and, and reminisce about life on on the reservations where these soldiers either had been in charge or they would reminisce about battles, as you say, um, you know, it's like you see this playing out today sometimes with, um, Vietnam vets returning to Vietnam and meeting their counterparts. Um, you know, war veterans tend not to talk much about their experiences with civilians, but. They themselves know what happened and when they meet each other, whether they're, whether they're meeting people who are on their own side or the opposite side, there's a lot to talk about. And, um, you know, as I was saying about the little bighorn, the, the, that was a victory for the Lakota and Cheyenne. And, um, you know, there were a lot of soldiers who respected that and, and, and still do. I mean again, I not everybody was happy to see sinning Bull and he was excoriated in some places he was considered public enemy number one by a number of people
0: but but, it, um, but when it came to the men who actually fought, I, I was thinking in particular about uh there one of the when he, when he has this meeting with john ryan in uh in uh, uh arkansas uh, and oh, how i mean re, uh, Ryan uh had actually uh, been at the battlefield after a uh, little bighorn and he had recovered items. And yet, instead of sitting there and saying "You killed my friends, how dare you," he has this, you know, conversation as though, you know, they were fighting almost as though, as if they were fighting on the same side. How the, the, the detachment that, that that they seem to have been able to demonstrate about something that was not even a decade old just really fascinated me.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. This this um this soldier named Ryan, whom you mentioned, um. He had recovered one of Custer's guidon, blood, blood-soaked guidon, from the field, one of the flag, unit cavalry unit's flags, and brought it with him to uh, when he met with uh, when he came to see the Wild West as it traveled through Boston, and um, you know, Sitting Bull recognized it, and they uh, when Ryan came backstage, and they they did instantly. You know, strike up a conversation. I think it was along the lines like, wow, you were there too? Mm-hmm. You know, you know what happened, like that.
0: I was you know, half expecting uh, something along the lines where he was going to, you know, wave this in Sitting Bull's face and say, how dare you. But instead, it was, it was just the the, the amount of, of civility that the soldiers who at one point, you know, for whom Sitting Bull was at one point public enemy number one, it just was really astonishing. And, and you know, it, uh, as as I'm reading throughout the text, and that that happens repeatedly with with so many of these uh you know, with so many small episodes of that.
1: Yeah, and you know it's playing out today at Standing Rock, which was where Sitting Bull lived one of the one of the reservations that he lived on when he came back from Canada, and that that was where he was assassinated at the end. Um, but what happened in, at Standing Rock last year? Um, You know, with the uh, anti-pipeline protest and so on, uh, a number of veterans came in support of Native Americans, and that was just a complete 180 from, you know, what happened during the Indian Wars, Um, and there they were to say, uh, hey, you know, we're here, we we support you. Um, They even had a meeting with Lakota elders, and... um, apologized for, for, uh, these were descendants of men who, who served at the little big horn and, you know, during other battles on the frontier, direct descendant and they, they apologized to these, these uh, Lakota elders for, for our country's betrayal of native Americans. And it was quite a profound moment. And I think that's kind of, that shows that, you know, there's really a big shift underway, and uh, um, I think it's important, and that's something that's kind of an underlying theme of of um, my book, Blood Brothers. You know, here we have, on the cover of my book, there's a publicity poster of um, Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull, and it was taken in Montreal in 1885. And the caption says, um, foes in 76 and friends in 85, 76 refers to the Battle of the Little Bighorn, 1876 and 1885 was when Sitting Bull joined up with Buffalo Bill. And that's something that I I take a look at in Blood Brothers. You know, can former foes, white men and Native Americans become friends now And you know, in the 21st century, um, Cody and Sitting Bull were huge icons as, as we've talked about. Um, they were two sides of the same coin. Their names had everything to do with the Buffalo Cody for wiping them out by the hundreds. Um He won a contest, a hunting contest, to see who could get the name Buffalo Bill, and he killed more than everybody else and and won that name. And Sitting Bull's name, although this isn't immediately, isn't as immediately apparent as Buffalo Bill's name, but in Lakota, his name is Tatanka Ayatoka, and um, it means, um, it translates directly, not Sitting Bull sorry I'm blanking on what the exact translation is at the moment, but um something close to Sitting Bull. But anyway, bull report refers to a buffalo bull. Um in other words, both men were named after buffalo. And Sitting Bull's culture of course revolved in every way around the buffalo as a matter of spiritual import. The there was really the buffalo was in all of creation was the underpinning of their beliefs, not really what the Buffalo and wild animals were all about for for the newcomers. But here were the two men, you know, Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull, with names that derive from the Buffalo, former mortal enemies now coming together. You know, for sure, you know, it was... Uh, show business, but also there were there were a lot of other things going on there.
0: Why did Sitting Bull uh, end his uh, relationship with Buffalo Bill's show? Was there a a break of some sort? Was he just tired? Was he was it not profitable to have him with the show?
1: No, it wasn't that it was not profitable. I, I think it it was it certainly wasn't um, helping him, you know, spiritually or, or you know. Um, emotionally after he was in it he was in the show for four months. He was homesick. I mean his his family was back at Standing Rock. He missed everybody, his friends, you know, his tribe was in tatters. They were um you know, it was kind of the end times for, for Native Americans at that moment. Um he had seen it he had learned everything he felt he needed to learn about white men. He 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 saw what was going on uh in Washington. Um he did end up getting there and was never able to meet the meet with the president. He met he and the, the Native American cast members met with other officials. Um, he saw what was how all these cities were being built up everywhere, and he, and he um, you know witnessed these great feats of technology like the telephone being inaugur- being launched and electricity and he, he, he that all impressed him, but certainly not beyond the fact that it showed him white men had a certain kind of superiority, but not when it came to as I was mentioning, you know, taking care of starving children on the streets. So there, you know, there he had just had enough. He had learned enough and failed. It was time to go home. And Cody, you know, understood, and um, you know, they didn't have like a falling out or anything. At some point during their travels. Sitting Bull had given Cody a bear claw necklace, which was a big deal. I mean, the bear, a fierce warrior and the fierce animal spirit, and uh, that was a significant gift from Sitting Warrior to Warrior, from Sitting Bull to Cody. Um, you know, he they they knew each other's history. History. They knew that each respected the other as a formidable, formidable figure, and they uh, would often say that about each other reporters when they were being interviewed. So when it was time to go home, there isn't really an account of... I mean, there wasn't anybody there witnessing their final moments together, or maybe there was, but it wasn't reported. And uh, at any rate, Cody gave Bull this horse from the show, this horse that he rode, and that's the uh, horse that was trained to dance at the Sound of Gunfire, as I mentioned, and he Took it back with him to Standing Rock, and the horse danced um, as Sitting Bull was being assassinated during the height of the Ghost Dance fervor, and that was this um, apocalyptic frenzy.
0: As you mentioned, uh, that wasn't the uh, the Buffalo Bills' uh, last involvement with uh, Sitting Bull. As you mentioned, he uh, tried to uh, intervene uh, in the in with the whole ghost dance controversy right on the eve of sitting bull's uh, death,
1: oh yes that's that's uh, that thanks for reminding me about that um <coughs> Sitting Bull another thing he had been blamed for was this ghost dance ghost dance frenzy this ghost dancing that was going on on his reservation, and that was what that was was um Native Americans had learned a prophecy from from an Indian in Nevada named Wavoka, who, uh, foretold of a return to, uh, paradise, if, meaning a return to the old times when the buffalo were plentiful and, um, before the conquest, before white, before the arrival of white men, he foretold, foretold of this occurrence. And in order to bring that about, the tribes were instructed to dance and stomp and bring on the bring up bring it on bring on the apocalypse and they did and this frenzy swept across the plains and um it was very fierce at Standing Rock um the Lakota uh were the were were considered to be the the um they were called hostiles by the US government um they were the last holdouts they were the last of the tribes to come in and say, okay, you win. Um, And they, you know, they were, um, you know, just really uh, fierce contenders there. And uh, there was this very intense dancing going on on Standing Rock. And uh, the soldiers at the agency, including General McLaughlin, who was the agent in charge there, the one that Cody had to get permission from, for Sitting Bull to join his show, McLaughlin and the and some others blamed Sitting Bull for this uprising, and um, Sitting Bull really wasn't in, hadn't instigated it, but he was certainly a you know he had plenty of enemies, um, and not just among uh, the Americans, but um, you know there he was a powerful figure. As I said, he had his own enemies among his people. There were jealousies and intra-tribal rivalries and, uh, you know, a number of things conspired to take him down. And so that when he was blamed for the ghost dancing, um, it, it all turned into like a convenient moment to get rid of him. And Cody got wind of the, there was a plan to have sitting Bull arrested as the dancing grew crazier and crazier. And, um, Cody was asked by, um, general Nelson miles to, um, try to head off head out to Standing Rock and try to head off this arrest because he thought that um Miles thought that Cody would be the only person Sitting Bull would listen to at that point. And Cody had just returned from a wild west tour of, of um England and as the, he got this message from Miles as he was stepping off the, the uh boat in New York Harbor and uh, headed right out to the plains with several other people and um as he as he got near, as he approached Sitting Bull's cabin, who was like a you know a few hours away, he was waylaid by some of um, Sitting Bull's enemies, and told that Sitting Bull had left his cabin and was headed elsewhere. So Cody stopped at some point on the reservation and spent the night there and got he was they plied him with drinks. Cody Cody was a very heavy drinker, drinker, and they got him drunk, and so that was it. His attempt to um you know, try to head off what what became Sitting Bull's fascination failed. And he um, ended up, he had this near miss, almost able to save his friend, but it just didn't work out that way. Get here with this horse that he had given Sitting Bull dancing outside the cabin.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: You know, I'm pretty superstitious about that, Mark. I never talk about works in progress, <laughs> um, but I appreciate your asking. And uh,
0: Would it be superstitious if I were to wish you the best of luck with it, whatever it is?
1: Oh, no, I'll take, I'll take it. That's good.
0: <laughs> well, well, Deanne Stillman, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Mark. You too.